This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Design has always been a generous industry, as the numerous benefits and the ever-increasing number of designer show houses attest. And yes, black-tie galas and beautiful show houses are great ways to raise funds for charities and causes. But they are also labor and capital-intensive. And they're not the only way to raise funds and provide services for the many causes and organizations that need our help. I'm fortunate to have with me today three designers who in very different ways are using their creativity and contacts to bring fresh energy and imagination to philanthropy. First up is Charlotte Moss, who after a brief stint on Wall Street in the 1980s, began her career in design, soon becoming one of today's preeminent decorators known for her gracious, imaginative, and sumptuous interiors and her lines of furniture, fabrics, and rugs. She's the author of 11 books, most recently Charlotte Moss Flowers. The Virginia native was instrumental in the renovation of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, where she serves as a trustee, and she also serves on the board of the Bone Marrow Foundation and the Madu Conservancy, among her other many worthy endeavors. She's here to talk about her new book, At Home, A Celebration, which raises funds for No Kid Hungry. Hello, Charlotte. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm great. I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad to be with everyone. Thank you. Good. I'm also pleased to have with us James Hunniford, universally known as Ford. Ford is a distinguished designer whose new book, At Home, documents his signature ability to endow modern rooms with a softer edge and a poetic atmosphere through his acute eye for vintage industrial elements, rustic touches, and a subdued array of colors and textures. He has designed a range of furniture and a line of fabrics for Kravit. And in 2004, he launched Design on a Dime which grew from a series of six vignettes by designers housed in a housing works thrift shop into one of the New York design world's most anticipated annual events and has raised more than $20 million for housing works. Welcome, Ford. Thank you, Michael. And from Oakland, California, we have Kelly Finley of Joy Street Design. Kelly is a former lawyer who creates vivid, colorful, and family-friendly homes that are functional and always reflect her clients' personal passions. Three years ago, she founded the Joy Street Initiative to work directly with Bay Area nonprofit organizations to design top-level housing and support services that promote healing and growth, especially for those in transition or who have experienced trauma, as well as advocacy and educational support. Hello, Kelly. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so pleased to have all of you here because you are doing amazing things in a very fresh and wonderful ways. And Charlotte, I want to talk to you a little about this book which is just out. Full disclosure, I have to say, I was really honored to be asked to contribute to the book, Home, a Celebration. And it raises funds for No Kids Hungry. And I understand, even though it just got launched, Charlotte, it's already raised a quarter of a million dollars. Is that true? And how did this whole thing come about? Take it from the top, so to speak. Take it from the top. (laughs) Okay. I have owned a book written by, or actually edited by Edith Wharton, Uh, for a long time called The Book of the Homeless. And it was a book where Edith went in um, World War I. She wanted to raise more money than she'd already raised for war orphans. So she decided to create a book and go to all of her friends like 
Rupert Brooke and Henry James and Stravinsky and Cocteau. And she asked them all to do something. And they all contributed and made this great book. And I've always thought, Michael, it was such a great model as a fundraiser because you weren't, you didn't have your hand out, but you were just asking people to do what it is they do best. Anyway, I always joke that this book has been vibrating on my bookshelf, just waiting for the moment. And then when we all got locked down, the moment arose because I saw the food pantry lines. I knew that children were going to be particularly challenged because so many kids get their nutrition from their school meals. And then when the school shut down, that whole issue was even uh, exacerbated. So it just seemed right. And so I, I thought about it and I thought about it and I knew I could do this if I had the right team. So I said to my husband at dinner one night, I think I really need to do this. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. And he said, well, if you feel you need to do it, you simply must do it. So I called five friends. They became my posse. They were awesome. We all created our list of who knows who. We prioritized them. So we had diversity of all sort of disciplines, photographers, artists, poets, writers. And we started making asks. And I felt like I was running a deal on Wall Street, you know, on the phones and talking to people <laughs> and following up and trying to close the deal. And it took two months before we were totally committed for the book. And it was an exhilarating process. I, I really knew I stuck my neck out there with my friends who were going to all their friends. And everyone could not have been more optimistic and enthusiastic about it. And in the meantime, you know, I'd already gone to No Get Hungry to tell them about my idea. And they said, we're in. And then Rizzoli said, we're absolutely in. And then I just knew we were on our way. That's fantastic. And you brought up a good point. I mean, I know you've done many show houses in your day and you've, you know, involved with many charities, but, you know, asking designers to a show house involves a fair amount of money. For them. Yes. I mean, we did an episode on this in the podcast, and it can cost anywhere from $50,000 to several hundred thousands of dollars. And also, you have to hit up all your suppliers, your artisans, all those people that you use. So it's drawing on a lot of people's time and products and uh, materials, resources. everything, resources, yeah. all those resources. And I think what's so great about the book is you're drawing upon people's time, but they're not necessarily having to, you know, donate fabric or donate paint or donate a sideboard or a console or a sofa, even though you, we all have, you all have done that. Designers have all done that. So I thought it was a, such a smart way to go about doing it again. God knows there will still be show houses going on. And as I said, there seems like there's more than there ever were before, but you know, I wonder, do you guys worry that hitting up designers to do show houses, you keep going back to the same well, yeah. And everybody else is going to them. Everybody else is going to them, too. So I think what you guys are doing is really so important. Now, Ford, I'd love you to talk about Design on a Time, because that was a very different thing when it started. And again, and for the sake of full disclosure, I have to say that I have been involved with Housing Works, due to Ford, actually, for we won't say how many decades. And, you know, saw Design on a Dime. I remember from the very first one, we were hands-on there putting it together. And I think, what, there were five designer vignettes in the thrift shop, and now yeah. they get up to 
like 40 or 50, I think, designers. Uh, 75. 75 designer vignettes right. every spring. I mean, COVID, of course, interfered, and that's been an adjustment, but I, I have great faith that we'll be back. So talk a little about how you thought about that, Ford, and why you wanted to do that and why it was so important to you. You know, I, I felt that it was, I was in a point in my life where I really wanted to do something that was philanthropic and something that was meaningful, something that was kind of not on people's radar. And I think, you know, times have changed drastically in the past 20 years about diversity and inclusivity and uh, the, the gay world and, uh, you know, people that were HIV positive and, and trans and transitioning and homelessness. And I think that it was a real void for a lot of people to be on their tongue. And I wanted to, uh, you know, open up that uh, idea for people to embrace a community of people that was had very little support. A lot of them were abandoned by their family members. Uh, they had nowhere to live. They have no jobs. They were dealing with a major health medical crisis of HIV and AIDS, and they weren't the drugs that there are today. And a lot of the women that were HIV positive had young children and nowhere to live and no jobs, and they were not employable. And I think that the interior design community has always been so uh, able to join together and embrace housing works and design on a dime. And um, it was just an opportunity for me that I saw. And I certainly, you know, uh, Charlotte Moss and a handful of other designers were at the forefront at the beginning. This is not something I did alone. It was definitely with the support of the interior design community you, Michael, you know, in your different roles as editor-in-chief and, and of different publications. And, you know, it, that's how it started. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember it was a bit of a hard sell at the beginning. It was a very hard sell. People did not want to get involved. Right. They would, you know, it was not easy. But we were determined. I remember the jubilation when we announced that Charlotte was going to do it. You know, I mean, that yeah. was a major win for us. And didn't we do it in a garage or something, Ford? <laughs> it was their, uh, their first strip shop on 23rd Street between 2nd right. and 3rd. Right. Yeah. Right. So to get Charlotte Moss to agree to go below 57th Street. Oh, like, please. You know, okay. Like okay. Okay. Back I'm, off. Right. No, no, but also one of the things that has impressed me about about Design on a Dime and also your book, Charlotte, too, is the range of people that are involved. Like in the book, you know, home and celebration. It's not just interior designers. It's writers, no. it's artists, it's musicians. It's it's an impressive lineup of people. And for Design and a Dime, one of the things that I love about it is that it always discovers young and new talents and gives them an opportunity to really showcase their work. And that alone is a lot of work for it. And how does that how does that happen that you go about expanding and, and growing the the audience, the you know, not the audience, but rather the um, contributors, the designers who actually do the vignettes. You know, we go to, we talk to Charlotte, we talk to Miles Red, we talk to Alexander Branca, we talk to, uh, you know, Stephen Gambrell, a handful of other designers who, Robert Stilling, Sean, you know, uh, there's just a bunch of different designers that we talk to about who they might know, who mm-hmm. they might have you know, worked in their offices, started their own thing. And, you know, it's also different sponsors of 
magazines, uh, you know, whether it's Earth, which has been early on a very strong supporter, and Domino Magazine was, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning, and different. We had the cast of Girls be a co-sponsor, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was just different kinds of, um, and you know, Deborah Needleman, and you know, there were just so many different early on editors who were involved with getting behind it to be supportive. And I think that's how it all started. And I think, you know, just to follow that forward, I think, Michael, the thing that makes these things a success is because we have outreach to a broader group that you want to bring visibility to what it is you're doing. I mean, I wanted to bring visibility to the hunger issue and to No Kid Hungry. So the vehicle is not only just for fundraising, it is for awareness. And I think, you know, Ford, by opening up to so many different people, everybody spreads the word. That's what we want. We want that pipeline talking about these projects. Right. You know, I think also, Michael, one big thing for me is I think that, you know, Charlie has made her choices. Kelly has made her choices. But it's about uh, supporting your chosen family and people that you care about, people that you can have an impact on their lives and, you know, their opportunities, because I think we've all been given some chances in life. And that's what, you know, we want to do. Right. Now, Kelly, what you're doing and what I love about what you're doing is it's very hands-on and it's small. I mean, Design on a Dime has become big. I remember when it started small. And Charlotte, you have done all sorts of range of things. But Kelly, I think what you're doing is so impressive because it's very direct. So, Talk to me how that came about and what exactly Joy Street Initiative does. All right. So when I started Joy Street Design, I always knew there would be a kind of nonprofit element to it. Um, in every endeavor I've done, I used to be a fundraiser in New York. I was a lawyer. I always would figure out a way to give back. And I was finding that the more successful you become, the more people only really want you to give money, right? They really, right. that's all that they really want. Right, I check, wanted right to do check. something. Exactly. Right. And that's and that's fine. And money is important. Don't get me wrong. God knows. But I wanted to do something much more impactful, right? And so I started out with really just setting up alumni kind of groups together from Stanford or wherever. And we would get together and we would go into a shelter and help out. And what I found was that everybody has great intentions but everybody does not know what they're doing. They no. are really um, bad at painting. They're really, like, it's all these things that are happening. And I found myself sending in my team of professionals after the fact right. to fix the problems. Right. Volunteering so decided, is great, but you have to right. be, you know, don't just volunteer to be there. Right. Exactly. So I simply came up with the idea for the nonprofit to be a nonprofit that was really there to provide support to other nonprofits, really sh- uh, women's shelters in the Bay for now. And we give back in a way that I think is a little bit more dignified. So we hire professionals to do all the work. We don't put in hand-me-down items for the most part. We'll, you know, we'll take some gently used items, but generally we are treating them as we treat our clients. And we have talked to some of the places we've done it for, and they have shown a remarkable um, willingness for the new people who come into the shelter to be engaged because they feel like appreciated. And the rooms and the things that we're doing are not just like something at the end of uh, a project. So what we do is essentially Joy Street Initiative gets 10% of all the profits from the design firm. Which is your design firm. So that's yeah, out of so your pocket, out of my essentially. Pocket. <laughs> right. But it's great for like, like a year right now is getting, you know, 
we're, be, we're able to do a lot more. And so what we do with that money, we reach out to our vendors. We have a lot of vendors that are willing to donate product and anything they won't donate, we buy and we pay for labor. So for example, we're renovating um, a teen shelter, a youth shelter in Hayward, California right now. And what we've been great, it's been great because we've gotten almost everything donated, the tile, the floor, everything from our vendors, but more important. So we're paying the $25,000 to the contractor to do the work. And that's right. where we're putting our money towards this so it can be done properly. And when these, this is a new shelter, that's the only teen shelter kind of within 50 miles. And when these teens come, they're going to feel loved and appreciated and, you know, safe, hopefully in this new space. So that's kind of where we're much smaller and we're trying to be impactful on the, you know, like a one-on-one basis almost as we um, figure out the best way to you know move forward. Well, I think it's so important what you were saying about how you treat the, the you know the people who come to these shelters or these services as if they were your clients because there's a level of professionalism and this is one of the things I've always admired about Housing Works and Design on a Dime and Charlotte what you do Kip Spay all of those other organizations you have to um bring your full-on skills because people know when they're being condescended to. They know when they're getting third rate, second rate and you know how do you ele- how do you pe- increase people's self esteem if you're treating them as if they're second rate? That's never going to work. And I think that that's so important. And you know, there's so many organizations. Like, I'd love to get a sense from each of you what your advice would be to designers who are out there. I mean, design and artists, designers and artists, I think are tapped upon all the time to give for causes, and because I think a they're creative. And B, they're out in the world and they deal with all levels of society. And I think, you know, designers and artists are soft touches. So they get hit hit upon quite a bit. So my question to you guys is, how does a designer who's out there and wants to do good, what should they do? Get involved with a bigger organization, reach out, start something in themselves? Like, Kelly, what would you say? You know, I will say I, I approach this initially as this is my skill set, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to use my skill set and do what I can. And so I think any designer, honestly, can reach out <laughs> to any um, local nonprofit and assist in some way, big or small. And I think that we discount the notion of what we're providing to right. this organization. Would you advise going directly to the organization I think, I mean, when we reach out to, I kid you not, when we reach out to organizations, they think we're like pranking them because they can't imagine that we're actually going to do this for them. And so I think there, if it's someone local, someone that you know, like, I think that's helpful. There are also organizations, like I did work with an organization here initially, and I just wasn't fulfilled in the way they went about it. Mm -hmm. But there are organizations, there are a lot of new um, furniture organizations where they are helping place furniture that you know as designers that we either the client didn't want right somebody might have ordered it wrong who knows and those are the elements are so those things are still perfectly good and being used so there it doesn't have to cost a lot of money it just needs to use your eye and your your connections to help change something and even just going in and saying oh this room should be painted a different color so it's not so depressing could be you know the difference between somebody really enjoying their space and not yeah, a small change can have a huge impact, mm-hmm. as I can see. 
Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer struggling with really long lead times from your suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop Cherish. Our vintage, antique, and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. And Ford, what would you recommend? I mean, again, you said, think about the people that you're concerned with, your community. I think that is really good advice. But if you were, if somebody came to you and said, I want to do something similar to design on a dime, but in a different city, I mean, I know design and it's done in Miami or whatever, but how, how would you advise them? You know, I would think about, about things that you're drawn to or, or your interest and how to parallel that with uh, a charitable or philanthropic commitment, whether it's, you know, Kelly doing what she does or Charlotte because of her 11 books. Hello. I mean, nobody's done that before. So it's just like, you know, I heard her out of this. What's one more? That's, that's She's got I it feel. down, right, Charlie? You've got it down. <laughs> that's how I feel at happy hour. What's one more? <laughs> but I think that it's about, you know, we, we all make homes for people. And I think that's what our commitment is and to stay steady, whether it's, you know, a woman's issue or a, a diversity issue or a medical issue or, you know, but housing is really what it all comes down to that I think we're all in sync with. Mm-hmm. And that's the sense of community. Right. And Charlotte, what about like you, you, clearly knew about No Kid Hungry before you launched this book. How, and you get hit up so many different organizations. You're involved with so many organizations. How do you decide what you're going to attend to and what do you advise designer friends of yours? Because obviously you have an incredible range of contacts just looking at the back of the home book. Uh, there's like 125 people here, important, wonderful people, talented people that you re- were able to reach out to. So, What's your advice? You know, I think it all starts with um, some personal connection mm-hmm. to either a cause, an organization, that something that you're passionate about. I like what Kelly said about using understanding what your skill set is and how you'd like to leverage your skill set. Yeah, um, you know, through Very a not for profit. And you know, I've had people say things to me like, "I don't know how to get started." Who should I talk to? And, you know, I mean, it's just sitting down with people and sort of doing the Q&A, figuring out really what they are interested in and how much time they have. I think that is really a critical component here is understanding once you've made a commitment, you have to understand the amount of time you're going to spend, maybe how big a check you're going to write. It's really, again, it's like any business managing expectations you want to be able to live up to those expectations. Right. You know, I mean, for me, everything that I'm involved with has a personal connection in some way or another. And I think that's how you do your best work, you know, yeah. when you really have that that sort of connection. Yeah, passion comes through. Yeah, passion, you know? com- passion comes through. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, for you raised another issue that I think is really important too is – and I actually, you mentioned it as well, Charlotte, you know, you're not just helping the cause, you're getting the message out. So in this day of, well, COVID, where we couldn't have the parties and the benefits that we used to have, 
but also social media. How do you think these organizations or these causes can really best use social media or designers who are involved with these causes use social media? How important is that? And what do you think is effective? Yes, I think social media is a big part of how charitable organizations raise money. You know, I'm involved with uh, Art Walk, which is for a coalition for the homeless also. And they, you know, do a whole, you know, charitable part of it about artists designing plates and how things are sold. And I think that, you know, what Charlotte's doing with her message and what Kelly does and so many other designers, you know, it's about just getting it out there and in front of people. And, you know, I think the key, what I've learned about it is people who are just not going to lend their name but lend their time and their either their time or their money or their their Rolodex. Um, And I think that's what it's all about. You know, Michael, this book, really, its genesis could be attributed to Instagram, because at the beginning of the pandemic, we did two challenges on Instagram and we did one for Feeding America and one for No Kid Hungry. And we raised one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on two Instagram challenges. And what were the challenges exactly? How how did that work? Well, the 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 first one was boy, I really stuck my neck out on this one. Um, <laughs> I I went to everyone and said, for every collage that you do, I will donate a hundred dollars to Feeding America. Wow, you did put your neck out there. I did put my neck out there. Little did I know people would turn their dining room table into collage central. And on <laughs> and on Sunday, they were all cutting and pasting. And there we were at a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. You know, I mean it was it was mind-boggling. And then we did another challenge um and raised 50. So I thought, heck. If we can raise $150,000 through Instagram challenges, what can we do if we really hit the gas right. and really make a commitment? And I, you know, that's when I decided that it was Edith's book and going to people to ask them what it is they do to contribute. And the other interesting thing about those challenges is it proves that people do want to be reached out to, that they're willing and eager to contribute if you hit them the right way. You know, they feel it. And they're receptive, Michael, to the opportunity to do something because so many of them didn't know what to do. You know, they didn't know where to turn because, look, the statistics were overwhelming. I mean, the thing that really, really shocked me was to hear that one in six children in our country, one in six is food insecure. Right, in the right. in the United States of America. Right, right. And that really knocked me for a loop. So right. that was when I knew we had to right. seize the moment. Right. And I'll never forget, right at, soon after COVID shutdown started, the lines to the food banks around were, the country were just enormous. And all the food bank workers were saying, these are not people who normally came exactly. to them. Like, their people are, you know, one or two paychecks away from really hunger. And it was so shocking to me. I was going to say that, you know, in terms of social media for kind of what we're saying for just a lone designer who wants to get involved, like leveraging social media for brands and for contributions is huge, right? You know, at this point, we're asking for our vendors to provide products to our clients 
in lieu of a social media post, right? Or in, like, and that's what they're getting. And so I'm able to use my platform on Instagram to get, like we have somebody donating seven beds, right? That's huge. And that's because they know they're going to get an Instagram reel and a post. And there are tons of people out there with great followings. And why not use that to your advantage? One of the things we did kind of similar to Charlotte is we did a giveaway on Instagram right when the pandemic was really at its worst. And it was for a $5,000 room makeover for a frontline worker. And what the point was, we wanted people to honor those workers now and not wait. And so you had to like write a post and say why this person deserved it. So those, you know, everybody got their accolades now, even if they didn't win. And what we ended up doing is giving, it ended up being a $10,000 room makeover because we had so many vendors who reached out to us wanting to participate. And we redid the home, um, the bedroom of a worker who literally gave her children to her mother so she could go into to work every day and not infect them. And it was just unbelievable. The room came out gorgeous, by the way, but it was just a, a great opportunity for us to give back and the outpouring from our followers who wanted to participate or whatever. It was amazing um, just giving them that opportunity. And, and think of the immediacy of it, Michael. You know, it's the immediacy. I mean, you know, so many times in the past before we had all these these tools in our chest, so to speak, that we had to wait a long time. It was always a long lead time to do this and to do to do anything. And now, boom, just like Kelly said, it's an Instagram post and immediate eyeballs are on your cause. Right. And it's a very personal thing. It's not to say, like you were saying, Kelly, everybody got the accolades because they were the personal stories and Instagram and, and the other social media as well formats tell you that one person's story and it hits you on a very visceral personal level. And I think that's very, very powerful thing in terms of, you know, GoFundMe is another way. But for designers to do that and to draw upon the resources that you have and the connections that you have, and, you know, Kim Kardashian's not the only influencer here. I mean, the design world is a very, there's lots of people with big followings. And that is, I think, such an important way that they could use that following and influence for good, you know? We know that, you know, No Kid It's Hungry has its own social media thing and all of that. And But now with all these people pushing the book and all of that, I think it's going to raise the awareness of that organization exponentially. And that's what's happened with Housing Works over the years too, Ford, is you got all those designers involved and they start spreading the word and it's a geometrical progression. Look what but Obama t- did. That's how Obama got a elected. I mean, exactly. so many people. I mean, he knew how to get to the people. And it's not about, um, you know, I've always said this about philanthropy. It's not someone who can necessarily write the $100,000 check. But yes, we'll take it. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, but if you can, what, more power to you. But we want to empower more people about philanthropy and about giving. And, you know, it can be a dollar from some school kid. It's those UNICEF trick-or-treat boxes where people drop in their pennies and every little bit counts. Just, you know, take the population and multiply it by a buck. I mean, wow. Right, right. But at the same time, for a lot of these programs, there are physical constraints. Like if you want to do a show house, that's, you know, as we were saying, a lot of money and it's three or four months out of your life. And if you want to put on a show house, you've got to find a house, you've got to find the real estate, all of that. And Kelly, you have, I know, have to deal with a certain amount of bureaucracy. 
So, you know, how do you keep the momentum going? And how do you keep that moving ahead in the light of, I listen, I know from when I worked at the women's shelter, I, every time I went there for to meet with these women, I have to go through such a rigmarole just to get in the door. You know, it didn't matter that I'd been there 15 times already. It was the same rigmarole. And I just thought, you know. Yeah, I think that, you know, honestly, because it's such a passion for me, I kind of get over it. I will not yes. say that you get over in it. the privacy of my office, I may not say it in such a way. But <laughs> I think that for me, the other thing we haven't really talked about is, you know, design is luxury, right? Design or it's treated, the interior design industry is treated as luxury and right. only the people who can really afford it get these services that we provide on a normal basis. And I like the idea of paying it back to the people who will never be able to afford right. our services in certain ways. And being able to do that really really keeps me excited and as we're like finishing up this youth shelter this month like literally I, I talked to my team I'm like I'm just so pumped I cannot wait to see it and you know it's not the same as you know getting that custom piece that you put in a client's right. house but it's just a it's a feeling that really feeds my soul and therefore I'm able to overcome <laughs> the bureaucracy <laughs> and slowness or what have you for the most part I also previously worked in a nonprofit office so I kind of know what to expect. <laughs> right. And right. It, it helps being able to approach them with their limited resources and give them as much information so that you don't have to deal with some of the delays and the back and forth um, as well. So we, we, we prepare them as much as we can, but we also just practice a level of patience that I probably did not have before I had children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really love that you're, whole setup, Kelly, how you have, and I think a lot of not-for-profits would benefit from understanding where to spend the money and where to get the donations, because you can't get cheap on the work, you know, so you the, the model is a really good one. Might have to steal it for something else. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, the good thing about it, too, is we, as we all know, we're only as good as our subs, right? We're only as good Ugh. as the people who create the yeah. magic that we're trying to put on paper. And so this allows me also not to devalue them and ask them to go and do work. Well, I do ask them to do it at cost. Right. <laughs> I don't, you know, ignore the fact that they are outlaying something for me. And then while it's, they should feel good about it, that's not their responsibility to take on that challenge. Right. So it gives me the opportunity to do both, like to give back to the nonprofit, but also to respect myself in, in a way that, you know, asking them to do it for free just would, you know, wouldn't be right all the time. And if I have one sub who does give me like the countertop, I pay for, what do I pay for the countertop material? And he does the fabrication for free or something like that. He will right. try to find elements that he can shave off, but he's still getting paid for the work that he's doing and for his team. So it, right. it's kind of the best of both worlds. Right. Yeah. And I have a feeling many of those resources or subcontractors are, would, are almost happy to be drawn upon because they also don't know how to contribute. They People exactly. are aware of the problems, but they don't, like you were saying, Charlotte, they don't necessarily know what to do about it. And if you give them an opportunity, I mean, Ford, we know some people will still say no, but most people will say yes, eventually. If you ask, keep asking and get to the right people, wouldn't you say, Ford? Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, what Charlotte and Kelly and, and, you know, I do is, I think people know where their money and time is going to be put into 
the mm-hmm. impact and the meaning. And I think that's a big part of doing this, this kind of, uh, work is that if you kind of know the end goal of how it's going to benefit the quality of people's lives or that at least with housing works, all the money we raise goes directly towards the cause. We don't have, you know, we get sponsors to underwrite parts of things. So if you give a dollar, a dollar is put into, you know, a woman's uh, shelter or a job training program to get women off the street and back into a job training program so they can get a job or getting their children into a school facility. And that's what it's all about, getting a, a, a drug user clean and uh right. you know that's not easy right because we all know about very good organizations and charities that have big fancy events and then they raise you know four hundred thousand dollars and three hundred thousand dollars of that goes for the caterer for the rental for the right. you know help so it's like a question of how much money and i know certain events that are not so interesting that people say i'd just rather write a check and stay home you know they don't want right. to go to them because they're not fun so that's another thing, because I think, as you were saying, Ford, it's a different generation now in terms of philanthropy, as well as so many other things. So how do people, how do you hit people up so you get to their heart, so they understand the message? Because I think the other thing that people get involved, you know, like Kips Bay Showhouse, Charlotte, Ford, we know that it goes for Kips Bay for the kids and everything, but you hear the Kips Bay Showhouse, you just think it's like this glamorous thing every year where these over-the-top rooms and everybody loves it but you don't want to lose sight of the cause. And I think that that's something else that social media can be really useful for as well, is to make sure that the trappings don't overwhelm the real reason underneath for for putting all the trappings together. You know, Michael, um, most not-for-profits are rated based on how much money it takes to raise a dollar. Right. You know, and I think it's when you're, being wooed for a board or something like that, where I have been wooed for a particular board and had to ask questions that I was staggered board members couldn't answer Mm -hmm. about how much money other board members gave, what their annual commitment was, and literally how much money is spent to raise another dollar. They just didn't have those answers. And it's, it's really important because like you, I do ask those questions how much money was spent off message before right. you drill it down to that bottom line of what went to the organization? Right. You know, that's um, it, it's an important question to ask right. if you are um, being asked to be on a board or right. being just being involved and raising money. Right. Look, when Ford first knocked on my door and we did that thing and I cleaned out my closet and God knows what else I did. And we created <laughs> a stand for design on a dime. You know, you just did it because you did it on faith because of the people that ask, you right. know, and right. you know that if their heart's in it, that your heart will follow. That's all. Right. And the other thing that I think this is so important is that design is a generous industry. But you also don't want to be taken advantage of. So what you were saying, Charlotte, is so crucial. You know, it's it's easy now to do a lot of research, to do more research. Some people don't do any research. But it's like if a friend of comes to you and says, I'm involved with this organization, you should be involved as well. That's really what's going to put you over the top. I mean, exactly. maybe you do some research or not. And it, And I think that people and designers especially shouldn't be afraid to use 
your friends and your contacts. And you're not using them, you, but you're approaching them and letting them know what you're passionate about and what you're involved with. And I think, you know, that's what Ford did. That's what you did, Charlotte. Kelly, that's clearly what you do as well with all of your, and, and not just your fellow designers, but your vendors, you know, your PR person, who all those people that you work with, if you let them know what you're passionate about and why it's so meaningful and important to you, I think that they will respond when you ask them whether it's to write a check or to donate countertop materials or whatever, they will do what they can. And, you know, you people are such exemplars of that. But I think every designer out there who's concerned about whatever their cause might be, whether it's homelessness or drug abuse or abused women or God knows hunger, there's an endless list of things that need help in this country and abroad, Doctors Without Borders, all of that. If you let your friends and associates and professional people you work with know what you care about, they will respond. But I think a lot of people are very shy about approaching other people thinking, oh, I can't ask people to donate money. But it isn't always just about money. It's just to ask them for their interests, ask them to listen to you. And I think that's important. And, and Kelly, you're, you're, and then really, hopefully the money will come. And hopefully the money yes. will come. Exactly. <laughs> Next week. You have to, you're seeding it, you know, and, yes. and, you know, I love that what you're doing because you're, how old, how old is your Joy Street initiative? Three years. Yeah. See, you're a baby. You know, mm-hmm. and that's to me so impressive. I mean, Ford, I hate to say it, design and a dime is getting up there, you know, <laughs> as are we. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a three year old program is that is so exciting. And, you know, I, I think more and more people, hopefully from this podcast will help as well, need to know about what you're doing. And I think it's going to be inspiring for a lot of designers to think, oh, I can do it on a small level. Not that we don't want you doing the Kips Bay Show House. If you get asked <laughs> to do the Kips Bay Show House, do it. If you get asked to use do a local show house anywhere, you know, what, whichever the show house is, if you can afford it, you should do it. It's good for your career. But there's a lot of things that designers can do. And, you know, all three of you, I think, are just so inspiring in that way about not only for the money that you raise for these great causes, but for how you get people to think differently about what the design world can do. And I think that's just such an important thing, such a great thing, because design is a generous field. We do deal with very high-end individuals. We all want to, as you were saying, Kelly, pay it back. And I think the ways you guys have come up with doing that are so imaginative and impressive. So, you know, I want to thank my wonderful guests today, three great philanthropists, Charlotte Moss, James Hunniford, and Kelly Finley. So thank you all for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time. Mm-hmm.